Let us pray. O dearest Jesus, in every deed you have shown yourself to be the true light for all people. You desire to enlighten all people to eternal life. Your grace is so great that we can never sufficiently thank you. We were without God, strangers, and outside your people, but you have made us your people and fellow citizens with the saints of your household. For this we justly praise you with thankful hearts and tongues and with all our gifts. We furthermore pray you, O most faithful Redeemer, cause your grace to abound in us. Keep us and our descendants in the blessed knowledge of yourself until the last day. And so guide and lead us by your Holy Spirit that we no longer walk in the vanity of our reason and sinful lusts, but rather lead a godly life, serving you in due obedience as our King. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation this morning is the Holy Gospel for the Feast of the Epiphany, the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the second chapter beginning with the first verse. Please rise in Jesus' name. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea when Herod was king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was alarmed, and all Jerusalem with him. He gathered together all the people's chief priests and experts in the law. He asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, because this was written through the prophet, You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are certainly not least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and found out from them exactly when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report to me so that I may also go and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Then the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stood still over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with overwhelming joy. After they went into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Since they had been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. These are your words, Heavenly Father. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Tradition says there were three magi and that they were kings. As you heard, the gospel doesn't say any of that. It only says wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and they opened their treasures and offered Jesus gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The idea of the kings likely comes out of Psalm 72, which says, The kings of Tarshish and of the seacoasts will bring tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer him gifts. All kings will bow down to him. All nations will serve him. The idea that there were three of them likely comes out of the idea that there were three gifts, and also out of the thought that they represent the descendants of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, from whom the whole world is populated. Now, almost certainly they were not kings, but these magi were astronomers or astrologers, men who read the stars, and who advised kings. 
and there could have been any number of them from two or more. But there's significance to be seen in the thought that they represent all the nations. That psalm declares that all kings will bow down to him, all nations will serve him. These magi, whoever they were, were not Jewish. And yet why did they come looking for Jesus? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. According to God's plan and promise, the nations are drawn to the Savior. Because this is so, we first asked, why do they seek him? And second, how do they seek him? In the ninth chapter of his letter to the Romans, St. Paul discusses the way God had long ago planned to share the gospel with the nations, with non-Jewish people. This is also what God says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And she who is not loved, I will call my loved one. And it will be that in the place where they were told, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out about Israel, Although the number of the sons of Israel is as great as the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord who carries out what he says without delay will do what he said completely and decisively on the earth. Just as Isaiah said earlier, the Lord of, if the Lord of armies had not left us some descendants, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness have obtained righteousness, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, while pursuing the law as a way of righteousness, did not reach it. Why? Because they kept pursuing it not by faith, but as if it comes by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion over which they will stumble, and a rock over which they will fall. The one who believes in him will not be put to shame. And this all speaks about how God, when his chosen people rejected him and his grace, turned his gracious eye to the nations. When Hosea prophesied this, it was meant to shame the Israelites into repentance. It pricked their pride as the chosen people of God to hear that God could shift his affections and share it with someone else. But within that threat was a promise. One that the nation of Israel may by this point have long forgotten, that God said to Abraham, all of the families of the earth will be blessed in you. This itself drew from the threat to the serpent itself a promise to Eve. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. The blessing would undo the curse. Satan had cursed all mankind, all nations yet unborn in Eve, the mother of all the living. But God promised to defeat the curse bringer, to undo it, and to provide a blessing. As time went on, God showed where this seed of the woman would be found. He would be Abraham's descendant, Isaac's, Jacob's, Judah's, David's, Mary's. But the promise was never only for Abraham or for any of these individuals. Instead, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call. And these magi were some of those who were far away. And some 
of God's prophets had been among such wise men and astrologers. Daniel, for instance, was famous among the Babylonians and the Persians, infamous even. As a result of God's powerful working of faith and witness in Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar commanded this, that every people, nation, and language that speaks any blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut to pieces, and his house shall be turned into a pile of rubble, because there is no other God who is able to save like this. King Darius went further after Daniel survived the lion's den, saying, I give this command throughout my royal dominion. People should continually tremble and be afraid before the God of Daniel, because he is the living God who endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, and his dominion is eternal. He rescues and he saves. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. So he saved Daniel from the power of the lions. In this same Daniel prophesied while in Babylon, I kept watching the night visions, and there in the clouds of heaven I saw one like a son of man coming. He came to the Ancient of Days, and he was brought before him. To him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages will worship him. His dominion is an eternal dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. But this was only one witness. The word of God went out into all nations, inherited from Noah's sons, so that the Canaanites who were supplanted by Israel knew and had corrupted many of the promises. And even today, mutilated forms of God's word are found in every nation on earth. The light of God cannot be denied. Sinful man has corrupted it, and that light needs to be restored through the word of God. When those astrologers saw the light of the star over Israel, they understood its significance in part. They knew, as they said, that it signified the one who has been born king of the Jews. Why would non-Jews come to worship the Jewish king, however, except that they knew that he was the one who was powerful to save, the one whose kingdom was eternal and would not be destroyed? the one whom they were obligated by God's sovereign word to fall down and worship. I heard a fellow pastor recently tell me that he preached in his Christmas sermon about the Savior who was born. But a man from the community later asked him what was even meant by the term Savior. What would he save people from and how and why? St. John prophesied via revelation that the kingdom of Satan would spew forth false teaching from the pit of hell, and the apostle describes the picture, the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the pit. The bright righteousness and truth of God and his light are obscured by false teaching. As time draws to its close, we see this darkness grow. Those magi from the east were moved to search for a savior, but it's more common for people today to be like Herod and the Jews, looking downward and inward instead at our own glory. Any light that breaks into this comfortable darkness will only prove that we are not our own gods. And as such, men like Herod are alarmed and beg to find out where to target this weak God who comes to supplant 
our thrones. But the Holy Spirit has called you by this gospel so that you do seek your Savior like these faithful magi. So take note, how do they seek him? It starts with a star. When they saw it, they undertook a long journey, one which, depending on where they came from, could have taken up to two years. Because they knew this star meant the birth of the king of the Jews, the savior of the world, the Magi were moved to travel far, to strive hard to reach the goal. The same spirit could be found in St. Paul years later. He said, do you not know that when runners compete in the stadium, they all run, but only one receives the prize? Run like that to win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable victor's wreath, but we do it for an imperishable one. That is why there is nothing aimless about the way I run. There is no pummeling of the air in the way I box. Instead, I hit my body hard to make it my slave, so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be rejected. And note there that there is nothing aimless in this effort. The star apparently was no longer visible by the time the Magi made it to Israel, but they went to the logical place to find the king of that land, the palace in the capital city of Jerusalem. But instead they found Herod. And these two kings could not be more different. One a humble child, the other an arrogant, self-aggrandizing man. One laid in a bed of hay, the food for beasts of burden. The other dressed in silks and living in a palace. One who would lay down his life to save the whole world. The other who feared anyone and everyone as enemies, paranoid that they might try to steal his kingdom from him. And nevertheless, God used that self-glorifying king, Herod, to provide what the Magi needed. They asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And Herod, in his reaction of shock and anxiety, turned to exactly the right source. He gathered together all the people's chief priests and experts in the law. He asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, because this was written through the prophet, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are certainly not least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this really proves a comforting point. In the Augsburg Confession, the Lutheran princes pronounced it before the Holy Roman Emperor this way, both the sacraments and the word are effective because of the institution and commandment of Christ, even when administered by evil men. This means for your own faith and for the nourishing of your faith, you don't need to be concerned about the faith of your pastor or about whoever shares that word with you. And you don't need to be concerned about the faith of the person who shares that word with you to indicate whether or not the congregation you have gathered into is a real Christian congregation or not. The church is found where the word is preached and the sacraments are administered. Think about who owns these things. It's God's word. And baptism and Holy Communion are instituted by Christ with his command. 
So where these things are found, Christ himself is working through them. Even if the man whose hands he uses is himself an unbeliever or a hypocrite. And so these magi learned through God's word how to find the Savior. They searched diligently like the Bereans. They received the word very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see if these things were so. Because of what was provided for them, they hungered for it. They ran for it. They searched for it. But when it was given to them, it wasn't given by any effort of men. The star was manifested by God. The wicked King Herod was incapable of finding holiness, but God revealed it. And as they went to, the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stood still over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with overwhelming joy. It was the revelation God made himself to give himself to these men from the east. And he gave them something foolish too, a child in a humble house, in a humble town. But the faith he had given them made them rejoice. And they gave him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But these were only the natural tribute of hearts that already loved him for what he gave. They gave him gold because he would win for them crowns of gold, even as on his own head went a crown of thorns. They gave him frankincense because he was the great high priest who would intercede for them, the mediator between God and men, who would offer the once-for-all sacrifice of his own, his own flesh. And they gave him myrrh because his purpose was to die for mankind, and the appropriate honor would be to anoint him with that fragrance in his death. And there are many questions we have about these wise men, who they are, where they came from. But the point is clear that God was working to draw these nations to the Savior. This Savior, the child in Bethlehem, would grow into an adult, lay down his life for the people in Israel and for all the nations of the world. And in his resurrection, the glory of God would be seen to have accomplished redemption, eternal life, and salvation. This is your Savior. And he draws you to himself with his word and sacrament to give you his eternal gifts. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen. Our service continues with the prayer.